0: Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I have two guests. I have returning to us is Dr. Lee Milligan, the CIO at Asante and his Medical Director of Informatics, P- uh, Dr. Peter Canning. And we're going to be talking about PAMA. We're going to talk about the, it's the Protecting Access to Medicare Act, and we'll get into what that is and, and the impact it's going to have on our system. But first, let's say hello. Hello, Lee and Peter. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Mark. Hey, so Peter, we've already had Lee on the show. So everyone knows who Lee is. Peter, what do you do at Asanta? Help the audience know a little bit more about you.
1: All right. About five months ago now, I took over as our medical director of informatics. So I took over some of the roles that Lee was doing as our CMIO before he became CIO. And really, I've been focusing most of my attention on trying to help our providers with all of the technology we adopt which is mostly our EHR, EPIC.
0: Great. So you stay busy working directly with the providers, it sounds like. That's correct. All right, great. So let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about PAMA. So this law has been around for many years now, but it has not implemented the piece that actually hits physicians until what's going to be January 1 of 2020. And what it requires, if I'm understanding this law correctly, is you have to go through something called appropriate use criteria, which we all know as clinical decision support, before you order any kind of advanced imaging. And that's nuclear medicine studies, PET scans, CT scans, and MRIs. And it's for the outpatient departments, and that includes the emergency department. If you don't do that by the following year, January 1 of 2021, Medicare is going to deny the claims. So it's only for Medicare. And it is somewhat of a burden here, as we've started to put this in place. So I'm glad we're having a conversation about it. First of all, is that your guys' understanding of the law? Is that your interpretation of what Medicare has put forth?
2: yeah this is something that we've been working on for a couple years now and i'll just share with you that our road has been pretty dang rocky around this and when we first learned about it it kind of happened as a as a happenstance someone just mentioned it to me kind of randomly at a conference and then i realized pretty quickly that we were um, at that time i thought behind the eight ball a bit on getting things up and running and then we began to look at some vendors to understand what options were available i realized pretty quick that the products and services were really clunky. And although uh, vendors were trying to meet this need and trying to find a space here, um, it was pretty clear that they didn't have it all figured out. And we realized that we were gonna move forward on this, but it was gonna be a rocky road for, for our docs.
0: So Peter, in terms of that clunkiness, you're using this tool that, that you guys must have installed now. So what, what does that mean when Lee talks about clunkiness?
1: Oh, well, what Lee means is it was a total disaster, really. (laughs) (laughs) So we originally thought that this was going to be required in January 2018. So we put a lot of work in on the front end, and we adopted the ACR Select tool, which was ACR's preferred vendor at the time. And when we rolled this out, we did a three-month trial, and it really flopped. And the user interface was the biggest problem. So instead of being able to just type in the indication for uh, an imaging study, we were presented with this giant list of buttons in alphabetical order uh, with indications and no longer the ability to type anything to the radiologists. And so the first thing on that list was acromegaly and there were other (laughs) useful things like uh, congenital ichthyosis. And so it became kind of impossible to figure out quickly what you wanted to actually communicate to the radiologists. And so as you can imagine, our docs just threw their hands up in the air and said, no way.
0: So we did something very similar, where we also went with one of those checkbox type things. But we gave our doctors the option to put in free text with a little free text field. Now, what we didn't realize is when you do free text, you have bypassed the clinical decision support tool because the tool cannot understand free text. So we had our ER doctors, they would just put in CP for chest pain, real quick and easy, but also completely um, defeats the purpose of the tool and would not qualify as clinical decision support. So we also found very low compliance with the tools on our end. Did you guys allow the free text, or did you block that?
1: We did allow the free text. I think we ran into the same problem. But interestingly, in that three-month trial, even when people were using the tool the way it was designed, zero imaging studies were changed based on the CDS.
0: And I think that brings up our next question is, is this law going to be effective? I mean, we're stuck with it no matter what. But will this help patients? What's your thoughts?
2: Uh, This is Lee. I I would say that it's going to be a long time before it truly is effective. I I understand that uh, at Johns Hopkins, for example, the number one indication for all head CTs was acromegaly, as uh, Peter uh, previously talked about. And it's because docs in the moment need to get through their moment. It's busy ER, for example. Uh, We now know, based on our own internal studies, that two-thirds of the times that this actually fires is for the er specifically so one of our lessons learned in hindsight was we should have first understood better where it would be most impactful and focus our efforts on those areas um, and so if if you're constantly putting in random indications that don't actually correspond to your clinical scenario then it really can't be effective i will say that there was an article from i think it was journal of radiology which looked at commercially available clinical decision support programs uh, and provider ordering habits and it concluded at the end that they had basically decreased some studies, but when you picked apart the details of the study, it actually didn't really, the conclusion was not really supported in the methods or the results. And mm. so I would say based on our own anecdotal experience here at one institution, combined with really picking apart the, the study that's been promulgated around this, I think the jury is still out on whether this actually will be impactful or not.
0: I think clinical decision support in general has been found to be helpful. So this should follow along in the same line of this should be better than having to go through some awkward prior off situation. Medicare doesn't have a prior auth tool right now. So this is kind of their way of doing prior authorization. Uh, Peter, what are your thoughts? Is this, this going to help patients, or is it just a burden for providers?
1: You know, I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head. I think the be- potential benefit lies in the ability to do away with prior authorization. If we can have a tool that proves to CMS that providers are ordering the right study at the right time, and they can just get it done and get it paid for, then I think that would benefit patients.
0: My understanding is the providers at the lower 5% of the audits when they do this will have to go through an actual prior authorization process. So there's some incentive to get this right, besides the fact that your radiologists aren't going to get paid for the study, your hospital won't get paid for the study. And I suspect, I don't know if you've instituted yet, that you won't do studies that don't have the appropriate clinical decision support code that gets attached to the claim saying that you actually did do clinical decision support. So is that your understanding as well, that that there's going to be a prior auth process put in place for the worst offenders?
2: Yeah, I think think that's where, where it's headed for sure. When you look at actually implementing a system within a health system, I think the internal docs is the easy part. I think one of my concerns is our external docs in the community who use our imaging services, how do we create a framework for them that allows them to most easily and effectively get through this system? Because in my opinion, the system that has a a framework in place that is easiest to use will be the one that captures the most imaging. If I'm a doc in the community and I've got three choices of where I order my images and one of them has put in place a fairly straightforward, easy framework, that's the one I'm gonna use.
0: So Lee, you're talking about a provider. They're in their own EMR, and they have not purchased one of these fairly expensive clinical support tools. You can't just use anything. You actually have to buy one that's accredited or approved by CMS to, to perform the service. Correct. So, so they're in their own EMR. They're having a nice day. They're seeing patients. And now they have to log into some other system, a portal, to then go through the clinical decision support and actually order their tests in your system. Is that how it's gonna work?
2: Yeah, we actually have that right now. We have enabled, um, we're on Epic. We've enabled essentially a read-only Epic version in our providers' offices around the valley that also allows them to be able to order tests and imaging. So the goal would be to roll this out to them in a similar format so that it's pretty easy to use. At the end of the day, folks who are submitting the claims for either the technical fee of doing the study or the professional fee for reading the study have to have that number that corresponds to the uh, CDS. And without that, they're not gonna be able to, to uh, get paid. And so at some point, they're gonna reject quests and orders for tests without that number on the front end. I will say that a lot of the vendors have created their own website that allows you to be able to generate a CDS number. But that is, in my opinion, very clunky. I think it's better to stay within your the normal system of ordering, and you simply have a, a framework in place that allows that to happen
0: within your normal workflow. See, our providers in the community are working in their EMR. That EMR generates a printed off paper document, which they bring to our system, which then gets transcribed and put in. And so they're not coming into a portal. I think going into the portal is going to be new. It sounds like you're one step ahead. You've got people already using your portal, which is fantastic. I'm not sure that's what's going on around the country, though. I still think there's a fair amount of paper that's generated and used for imaging right now, if people are using the hospital as their imaging center. And then these standalone imaging centers, they have to have the same thing. They are not exempt from this. So they have to do this too, and I'm positive that their portals are going to be clunky. Uh, they, they have not invested in good technology for maintaining an easy way to order through their system. It's all paper-based. You agree?
1: Yeah, I think that that's true. This is Peter. One of the other things that I envision as we roll this new system out is a scenario where a patient gets a study ordered potentially even goes to a facility and has the image done, but then the radiologist decides they're not going to take a look at it or read it because they won't get paid. And so how do we prepare for that type of scenario as well?
0: That's going to be really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so. Providers in the ambulatory setting, how are they doing, Peter, with this right now? Is it improved at all? Are they using more of the indications? Have they saved things to their favorites or their order sets or their smart sets so that this has become easier for them? Is that one way around this? Is there tools that we can use that will make this less clunky?
1: Yeah, there's certainly ways around it. I think as we get better at creating appropriate order sets for problems, then some of this goes away. When I looked recently, I think in the ambulatory world, about 80% of our providers are using order sets, and about 75% in the inpatient setting for us. So if we can get the right studies in place in those order sets, then this will become less of a problem.
0: What about commercial payers? So it only applies to Medicare, but does this work for commercial payers for you as well, or have you turned that off for them?
2: Yeah, so I think that's the, the vision. The vision is that we've got pre-auth taken care of with commercial payers uh, around this. And, and I remember a couple of years ago when we were first thinking about this, that was really one of the carrots that they were dangling out in front of us was this concept that pre-auths would just magically go away. And then there's been a lot of thought around individual providers, depending on how often they follow you know appropriate guidelines, that may correspond in some way to how much, CDS they're required to, to do. So I think right now, I think CMS doesn't know what they don't know about this, and they're in a, a bit of a fishing mode and kind of gathering information. But at some point, I think most docs who have thought about this realize that a lot of this information can be used to kind of navigate which docs they should spend their most time looking at and which ones they fly above the radar.
0: I think that's right, spot on. If I were a large blues plan, I would much rather have the hospital institute a clinical decision support tool at their expense, and I, as an insurer, would not have to pay a third party uh, prior authorization company, Milliman, or one of these other huge companies that does all the prior auths. That would be music to my ears. I think they would be jumping all over this opportunity. They still get appropriate ordering and at a at a free price, the hospital's paying for the uh, clinical support tool. Uh, do, you, do you have yeah. a health plan in, uh, in Asante?
2: We don't have a health, uh, a health plan other than we cover our own employees. We use as a TPA, we use Regents, but we're responsible. We're on the hook for our 10,000 lives associated with our organization. And so whatever we can do to make sure that we're being good stewards of that account is what we ought to be doing. I do, I do want to mention real quick, Mark, just to go back a little bit to um, to our journey. We did something pretty unusual when we first instituted our CDS support system. We had it in place, and I, I recall having a conversation with Peter. We were at a Christmas party, and I hadn't been working in the ER in a bit, and so I hadn't really experienced what he was experiencing. And so we are having a conversation, Peter, his wife, and myself, and, and he was explaining just how cumbersome the situation was, and... As we were talking through it, it became pretty clear that this thing had been kind of jammed in so quickly without the appropriate safeguards for the docs that we actually had to look at ripping it out. And so over the course of the next three months, we literally ripped it out of our system uh, and put it in the background so that docs weren't burdened with this moving forward. And, you know, I been doing this for about almost eight years now. I can count on one finger the number of things we've ripped out once we've put it in, put it in our system. And so we didn't take that decision lightly, but we really felt like in order to do right by the docs and the patients, we needed to mature this product. And I ended up having a conversation with the vendor and they put the contract on hold for us to their credit. They recognized and they voiced, They understood the concerns that we were expressing and ultimately were able to actually put our contract on hold, which I appreciated.
0: Well, that's, I guess, great of them, but would have been (laughs) better, I think, maybe, to roll out a great product in the beginning.
1: I would add one thing to that. Uh, Whenever we roll something out from the IT world, if it goes poorly, we lose that small amount of enthusiasm that we may have had for any sort of IT change we make. I feel like, in general, if our providers even know what CDS is, they're kind of agnostic towards it. They're very skeptical. And it's kind of, if I see it, I'll believe it kind of situation. And so when we roll out something that doesn't work well and then we have to pull the plug, they lose some um, faith in us.
0: Yeah, I can see that. That would um, certainly be like, hey, what are you guys experimenting on us with? But when it works well. If I order a a CT scan with IV contrast, and that's not really what the American College of Radiology recommends, and they said it should be without contrast, there's some value in that. So I can see how it could work well, giving the benefit of the doubt that it's got my indication that it knows what I'm trying to do. The problem is forcing us to check these little indications, I think, is. The provider is really not interested in finding the little box to check out of a series of 20 or 30 different options. They want it to be much cleaner. In an ideal state, artificial intelligence is reading my note, understanding what I'm trying to get at, and it does this all in the background for me. That's where we want to be at, right? Is that, is that Am I expecting too much?
2: Well, we're looking at reinstituting this, and we're looking at only two vendors right now. We've kind of narrowed it down. And both vendors have presented options which include what, what they're calling AI. And as three of us know pretty well, AI is touted and, and used in very broad terms sometimes. And certainly in this case, I think it's true. What, the, what they actually have is a tool that allows them to parse the chart for discrete data fields and bring that into the decision-making process around what, uh, what to offer up as the appropriate choice. They also include, for the first time, free text. So they apply NLP to the free text that you fill in, and that, in combination with the other discrete data fields that they bring in, ends up allowing you to have a choice. So, for example, if you said in your free text, you said, chest pain or pleuritic chest pain, shortness of breath, uh, hypoxia, rule out PE, it would come up pretty cleanly in terms of what the indication was. You wouldn't have to look through a, lo- a long pick list. So I think they're making progress in that front. The-, the challenge is always around vaporware. So we just recently had a couple of demos, and they weren't able to actually show us this in their test environment. Um, they're moving forward with a number of implementations, uh, both this month and next month, around this. to get their their heads around this, and they plan to showcase this to us later. But I feel like we're on the cutting edge, sorry, the cusp of being able to see that, but we're not quite there yet.
0: So my concern is that this law really starts going into effect January 1. Now, there's no penalty phase until the following year, but we have to have these systems up and running. I don't think anyone wants to show up on Medicare's list of not complying with this. So, and they do start looking January 1. So, they I don't think it's ready. I, I think they should roll it, but push it back again. They pushed it back for many years, but I'm not hearing that that's gonna happen this time. It sounds like they are going forward with it. Uh, I wrote to the American College of Physicians and said, hey, what are your guys' stance? What are you doing about this? This thing is not ready and I didn't hear back from them, but I, I don't know if you've written to the, uh, your societies that you may pay large dues to. What are your thoughts? Uh, are we ready? Is the country, not just Asante, is the country ready to roll this thing out?
1: Based on my experience, I think that we're not ready. I think that it's early, I think it's a little premature. And I, I guess I would voice one other concern. I think that this tool limits the way that we communicate with our radiologists, which may be one of the most important underlying points. Um, Lee and I both trained at a time where it was not too uncommon to walk down the hall and find the reading radiologist and actually have a face-to-face conversation with them. What that's been replaced by is us typing into fields and saying, hey, I really think this person may have appendicitis, giving them as much information as you can for the useful clinical context. Now, these tools are taking what we type, if we're even allowed to type, and pointing to, again, a very small, general uh, indication for the exam. And I think that that is going to hamper our radiologist's ability to really uh, know the clinical context of the patients we're ordering these tests on.
0: Oh, that's so spot on. Uh, Our radiologists hate it now. They get these one word indications, and. They really have no clinical insight unless they choose to go and open up Epic and look into our charts. And we're on Epic as well. And they then have to go and look and see what's going on with the patient clinically to get a better feel. That face-to-face stuff is gone, but so incredibly valuable. And I think the really good doctors do pick up the phone and at least have a conversation with the radiologist saying, I'm worried about this. Make sure you're looking for that. There's, it's so valuable.
1: Right. We have an 80-year-old with abdominal pain that comes in who has liver failure, history of Crohn's disease, and a triple A. And we write abdominal pain.
0: <laughs> yes. What is the radiologist <laughs> looking for? They, it just absolutely frustrates them. And this medicine's a team sport. And you really do need to help your colleagues and not make them guess what we're trying to get at when we order a study.
2: And Mark, um, I, I would just add to that. Uh, Peter is spot on on this. The, um, you know, part of this flows downhill, right? So if I walk down the hall and I see a radiologist and I tell him here are the three things I'm worried about with this patient. When that read comes through, if I've given him a a reasonable history, he can say I've excluded X, Y, and Z and then I can discharge the patient. So the implications aren't just about the individual read but it's actually, it flows downhill to our flow through the hospital uh, and the emergency department.
0: Yeah, that's vitally important. I love it when The radiologists, when I I say, hey, I'm worried about metastatic disease, and they say there's no METs on that scan, that's really reassuring that they have looked for METs, and they're not looking for something else. The law says that emergency patients are excluded, and they're pretty loose in how that's defined. There's not great wording that I found in the law, but I think if someone's got a large piece of rebar steel hanging out of their abdomen that you can move forward with your CAT scan without having to go through clinical decision support. But I don't know how to operationalize that in the electronic health record. Do you have or are planning to put in anything about trauma patients or code situations or any way of identifying this is someone where we can safely bypass clinical decision support and not be in jeopardy of uh, a Medicare audit for disregarding the law.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate the fact that they are thinking about this, and I think the spirit of what they're trying to accomplish makes sense, right? They're trying to say, look, if it's an emergency scenario, you ought to be able to bypass this. But to your point, how do you operationalize that? Because when you build out a system, you can't build that in because there's no way to really understand and pull data points that allows you to understand this person has rebar and this person's complaint doesn't ultimately uh, correspond to an emergency. On the front end, frequently, um, you're trying to figure out whether it really is truly an emergency or not, so there's no way to build that in. And they're, they're really clear that not all patients in the ER qualify as an emergency, and then they go out of their way to say there are other um, venues where it could be an emergency, like urgent care or even primary care, if the specifics warrant it. So in my opinion, they're trying to do the right thing, but there's really no way to operationalize that. You simply have to put it in place, and the doc's either going to have to follow the recommendation or not.
0: Yeah. I don't know how to operationalize it, because if it, some abdominal pain is a rupturing AAA, and some abdominal pain is this vague recurring chronic abdominal pain that probably doesn't need to be seen in my emergency department. so it's really difficult to, to figure out how we're going to use that um, in, a, in an operational sense. So what else about PAMA? Anything else that you guys think is valuable for our audience to consider about uh, the law?
2: I, I can go first. I, I would say that, uh, that the two main ways this will impact docs is on the front end, their, um, their user interface and how cumbersome or not it is. The best systems will put in place a structure whereby if they make the right choice, they don't even see a BPA pop up in their face. Uh, and if they make the wrong choice, that making the right choice is very clear and clean and intuitive and easy um, and, and digestible. Uh, but the other piece, I think, for docs where there's a little bit of, I think, a pro- I'll call it appropriate paranoia, is at the end of the day you're going to have administrators looking at lists of docs who fall someplace within a spectrum of ordering more or less appropriate tests and i think that the the best places will understand the limitations of a system like this and recognize that there may be some people who appear to be um, not ordering tests appropriately a lot but when you dive into the details of why they're doing it you realize that there may be more to the story and the example I would give is one that um, one of our hospitalist physician builders noted which is frequently she finds herself dealing with patients who have been referred to us as a regional referral center who've already had an x-ray a CT scan a typical uh, MR and now they're going to nuclear imaging of some sort because all those other tests have already been completed and so her concern is that she's going to fall out because she's not following the standard suggested test and yet based on the actual patient scenario uh, and her i'll call it location in the care spectrum she finds herself wanting to order this other test that is appropriate for that scenario but makes her fall out so I think on the front end, docs are worried about their, the user interface, and on their back end, I think they're worried about how they'll be
0: judged. Which I think is completely fair. On the flip side, there is huge variability in the way care is provided today, and there are providers out there who, the patient comes in and says, I need an MRI of my lumbar spine, and they pulled their back yesterday in the garden, and they're convinced that it is cancer in the spine. And if they want a good patient experience score, they're going to order that MRI. And there's huge variability. Some others would say, no, we're putting you through physical therapy, and we'll see you back in six weeks. So it, it, there's, there's two sides to the coin. I get it. I get what the clinical decision support tools are trying to do. I just wish they were less clunky, as you say. I wish that artificial intelligence piece was in place and the the ability to aggregate the data from outside sources would play into that would be so valuable to us, and that's really where we need to be, and no one's there yet. I haven't seen that from any product yet, so.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I will say that it, I think part of me in the beginning thought that maybe this would work to our advantage. So you find yourself in the ER, it's two in the morning, parents come in, kid bonked his head and they want a head CT. And I was hoping that on the front end, you'd be able to say, look, I, I don't think it makes sense based on my training. I will run it through the algorithm to see whether best practice would say we do this or not. And if it says no, then maybe we should reconsider it. I, I think it, it could potentially be used in that, in that manner. Um, I I found myself in that scenario multiple times and been the recipient of poor scores as a result of not ordering the head CT on a patient who didn't need it. So I I was hoping that this in some way would help that. The other piece I wanted to mention real quick, just switching gears a little bit is that um, although ACR, the American college radiology put out the initial guidelines around appropriate imaging, not all imaging support systems specifically leverage that. So one we're looking at right now actually leverages uh, Intermountain Healthcare's underlying uh, care practice pathways as their, kind of their, uh, their main reference for the uh, decision support that they provide. And so I think it's one piece of the puzzle. In the beginning, I thought everybody kind of pointed to ACR only, but now I'm realizing that the, uh, the law actually allows for a little bit of latitude around that. Uh, and a system like Intermountain Healthcare, who I have a lot of respect for, Um, And I think they've really kind of, um, they've nuanced their pathways over time based on feedback. Um, It's interesting to see that some systems are, um, are leveraging that.
0: Which I think is phenomenal our vendor that I'm working with says, oh, yes, you can leverage other recommendations from other societies, but there's an upcharge for that. And you have to buy this next package up to get the surgical society's recommendations or Intermountain's recommendations. And so that pisses me off. Give me your best product. I don't want your half product. I want the whole thing. So it drives me nuts. I don't know about you. but. Um,
1: It's it's challenging when you get some demonstrations from different vendors and you find you have to ask the specific question, which of this is in production and which of this is something that may be coming down the line? Because they will show you some things that look great but that aren't operationalized, but they won't necessarily volunteer that information.
0: Yeah, that's true. How about you, Peter? Anything else that you think is valuable for the audience to know or your concerns or excitement about PAMA?
1: I think Lee did a great job of of summarizing the main points. You know, I always think from a CDS world that the goal is to provide better patient care uh, in a timely fashion, um, thinking carefully about how we allocate our resources and not to make our providers' workflow more challenging. And if these things are done well, all of those things align, but I just don't think we're there yet
0: yeah well more to come uh, if we hear anything changing about this law i'm sure i'll put it on the podcast for sure and am it'll be broadcast widely in the news but in the meantime gear up prepare for january 1. right now i am hearing from other systems that provider compliance in the emergency department not using free text is somewhere around 50 to 60 percent. so we we have a ways to go and I am concerned uh, like you both sounds like you are as well about the impact that this will have on providers and they're gonna hate it if they're not already seeing it
2: yeah I, I would echo what uh, what Peter said on that and uh, and just add that my philosophy and strategy on this has changed you know dramatically over the last couple of years it started out as hey this might be a nice way to uh, to increase the quality of the of the care we deliver and also get our arms a little bit around the cost associated with it. And now I've hunkered down and it's really about how do I protect my providers and thereby protect my patients from this, from this law. And so as I look at scope, my goal is to narrow the scope as much as I possibly can to remain compliant and then within that narrow scope do our best to improve the user interface so that it's palatable for our providers.
0: I should ask you guys, do you have a committee or something that's looking at this area? How, how did you go about the governance of picking the tool and turning it on, turning it off, things like that?
2: We, st- we started with our um, normal governance process we have in place, which is our Physician Advisory Council and our Ambulatory Physician Advisory Council. But this time around, uh, since a couple of years ago, we actually developed a enterprise-wide imaging strategy committee uh, that looks at a lot of things, everything from a community-wide PACS to ambulatory and emergency department, point of care ultrasound. And they fortunately took this on. And one of our uh, chief operating officers of one of our hospitals, he's got a lot of experience in imaging and is chair of that committee. And he's doing a fantastic job of kind of shepherding the discussions on this along.
0: I think that's great. I think that really, I think we've covered the topic pretty well. So why don't we wrap it up there? Um, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at CMIOpodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at CMIOpodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.